I'm speaking to Mike Berlin from Birkbeck's Department of History, Classics and Archaeology. On the 24th of September, Mike is organising a study day at the Museum of London about the Great Fire of 1666. Mike, the Great Fire has been in the news a lot recently, of course, but could you remind our listeners of some of the key facts about it? Yes. The Great Fire occurred between the 3rd and the 6th of September, 1666. It destroyed about three-fifths of the city of London, and in total, it uh, affected over uh, 87 parish churches, 44 livery company halls, uh, the Guild Hall, the Royal Exchange, and very famously St. Paul's Cathedral, were destroyed beyond repair. And it led to a period of rebuilding, which affected the life of London uh, for the next 50 to 60 years, and certainly in terms of patterns of development and styles of architecture and some of the politics associated with the Great Fire, it, it affected London far longer than that. So it's a profound event in the history of London. It's sometimes seen as marking the transition between a medieval and a modern city, and it's those changes that we'd like to look at on the 24th of September. So what was life like in the immediate aftermath after the fire for ordinary Londoners? Utterly chaotic. Uh, Approximately 13,000 individual dwellings were destroyed and because of multiple occupancy and subdivision. Really something like in a population of approximately 350,000 people. You can imagine over 250,000 were made homeless. And they found themselves living... Um, for the next six months to a year, if not longer, in a series of makeshift encampments around London in the open fields, in places such as Spitalfields, in Islington, uh, in Clerkenwell, and even further afield in London's outer villages and suburbs down river from the Thames at places like Bethnal Green and and Bow and, um, and so on, found themselves living in tents and um, shanty towns. And it really wasn't until um, really about a year later that London started to rebuild, but it rebuilt, it rebuilt in, in fits and starts. And uh, the proper rebuilding took, as, as I say, many decades. So life in the aftermath of the fire was, was, was chaotic. Um, the, the grounds of London, the actual physical fabric of London, was, was um, still in ruins for a good decade after the fire and and it was said that in the six months after the fire the ground still was smoldering basements uh, uh, still smoldered the, 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 uh, in some places the land was still warm to the touch so you have to imagine it wasn't it, there wasn't this immediate rebuilding there was this period of, of total dislocation and then um, gradual uh, rebuilding so it would have been a long time before life began to take on any semblance of normality for, for ordinary Londoners. And it's well known that the cramped layout of London's streets at the time was a contributing factor to the spread of the fire. Um, and today, modern London's skyline still reflects some of the decisions that were made during that long rebuilding period that you referred to. So what were some of the proposals that were put forward during the rebu- rebuilding and what factors played into the decisions that were eventually made about how London would be structured? And- well, one of the first official responses to the the fire was to ask for a series of proposals for a planned rebuilding of London. And the uh, 
plans which were produced by, very famously, uh, amongst others, uh, Sir Christopher Wren, uh, the diarist and uh, member of the Royal Society, Sir John Evelyn, uh, the uh, fellow member of the Royal Society, a uh, great polymath, uh, Robert Hooke, and others, uh, was to produce uh, effectively designs for a city that would, was to be laid out on elegant Baroque town planning lines with a series of radial streets. And the city subdivided into equidistant uh, quarters along lines of, of parts of Paris at the time, rond-points, round uh, uh, piazzas, like the Piazza Covent Garden, the word was used at the time. Uh, these plans would have produced, had they been uh, seen through, a, a very different city to the one that eventually emerged. And one of the things we're going to be doing on the 24th is hearing from Mark Jenner at the University of York, who will be looking at those the, the artifacts of the plants, because they themselves, although they're extremely familiar to anyone uh, who, who knows a little bit about the post-fire city, the very interesting plans, the actual detailed publication history and the status of those plans is not so well known. Those plans which were presented to Charles II and... Uh, to court and were seen by members of parliament were rejected. And the reasons they were rejected were quite simple. The controlling interest of the city was the city corporation, uh, the Lord Mayor and Alderman, who represented the interests of the great uh, mercantile elite, the great merchants, uh, the shopkeepers, the craftsmen. And their priority was to see the city rebuilt as quickly as possible. The plans that had been presented by Wren and others, beautiful though they were, would have involved an extremely complex series of land reallocations, exchanges of property and so on, which would have completely overridden the existing property map of London. And so the, the time that would have taken to uh, rejig the city according to the new plans meant that the city would have taken, not merely as it did a decade and a half or two decades rebuild, but much, much longer. So um, as an alternative, there emerged a scheme for rebuilding London effectively along the old street patterns, but regulating the newly emerging built environment by a series of, uh, of building codes, which are famously known as the Acts uh, for Rebuilding the City of London after the Great Fire, one in 1667, one in 1670. And they effectively, in terms of planning law, uh, modern planning law, are, are one of the, the first examples of... Uh, parliamentary legislation, because there had been earlier local bylaws which regulate the built environment, and they're absolutely critical for understanding how London, how modern London looks and feels. Uh, you can still walk through the city of London today, uh, as I often do with students, using a tape measure, and quote aloud the 1667 Building Act about the width of streets, and use a tape measure and see exactly that the streets are exactly the same dimensions, because as you've said, the, the, one of the, the prime causes of the fire, aside from the, the wooden nature of much of the built environment, was the narrowness of the streets. And one of the key features of the new legislation was to uniform guidance as to how wide streets should be. And it, was it, it also led to the grading of houses into different types, different sizes, according to the nature of the streets. It also regulated the type of materials, very famously brick, rather than uh, wood, uh, timber frames. Uh, and also um, um, led to, combined with other features of arch the architect emerging architectural profession, a kind of uniform type of house, house type, which we would still recognize, I think, uh, in terms of 
18th, 19th, and indeed 20th century uh, domestic dwellings in London and elsewhere. It became a, a kind of style of architecture which effectively affected the, the design of the terraced house throughout Britain. And so you've already talked about some of the influences that, um, that played into the decisions about how London would be rebuilt. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the political and religious situation in London at the time of the fire and how that affected those decisions and, and the rebuilding period? On the day, we'll be hearing from uh, my colleague, uh, Professor Vanessa uh, Harding, who who has made a, a, a great specialism of, of uh, identifying the, the impacts of the fire, and particularly in terms of the politics at the time. You have to remember that the fire occurs merely a few years after the restoration of Charles II. Uh, it ends, the restoration of Charles II is often seen as ending 20 years of uh, political experimentation of uh, at first uh, the, the uh, 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 Republic, Commonwealth, and then protectorate of Oliver Cromwell and then his son and um, to royalists that that uh, that period of anarchy ends with the restoration however uh, it's important to remember that the regime of Charles II was not in 1666 by all means stable and by all means welcomed by all parts of London's population London had been uh, a stronghold of parliamentary sentiment and also religious dissent and religious radicalism. So um, prior to the Great Fire, there had been um, various unsuccessful attempts at uprisings in the favor of what was called at the time the good old cause. Uh, it was very famously Venner's Rebellion in 1664, which was a rebellion by a, 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 um, a, a religious radical sect, the Fifth Monarchists, uh, who were trying to over, overthrow Charles. Uh, there have been, of course, the the, the um, uh, impact of the wars with the Netherlands, which had resulted in uh, uh, Danish ships sailing up the Medway and burning the English fleet. And, of course, also there had been the, um, the great plague of the previous year, of 1665, which had killed 80,000 people in, as, as long, uh, in a summer. So the fire comes at a moment of profound political uncertainty and it's a time of rumor remembering that this is a society which is just undergone this huge profound religious and political upheaval of the civil wars and the commonwealth it's a time in which claims of divine intervention belief in biblical prophecy are even in the era in which the royal society is beginning the scientific enlightenment are very very widely held and so the year 1666, with its resonance, uh, with the eschatological prophecy of the second book of Daniel, 666, the name of the beast, uh, at the time, various different individuals identified the year 1666 as having some kind of resonance in terms of uh, God's judgments. And it has to be said, curiously, for a modern audience, that year had been identified long before the fire. You can go back to the Civil War period and hear of um, prophesiers such as uh, Mother Skipton of Yorkshire, uh, who had prophesied that London would be burnt down in the year 1666. Um, there's the uh, parliamentarian astrologer William Lilly, who also made a prediction of London's downfall uh, in, in the years 
long before the Great Fire. So the, the fire occurs at a moment of, in terms of popular culture and, 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 and sense of, of the politics and religion of the time, of crisis. And it's perceived very much in those eschatological, um, biblical terms. It's seen as, uh, by various different individuals, as a form of divine judgment. Uh, and, and that's something that I'm going to be looking at, is, is how it played into um, one of the key features of uh, the politics of the Restoration, which was anti-Catholicism. Brilliant, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for talking to us today. The study day takes place on the 24th of September and includes entry to the Fire Fire exhibition at the Museum of London. You can find out more and book a place at bbk.ac.uk forward slash greatfire. <laughs>